1: Welcome to the New Books Network. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Heinz Weiss about his book, Trauma, Guilt, and Reparation, published in 2020 by Rutledge. Dr. Weiss, and it is we pronounce it with a V, right? Weiss? Dr. Weiss? Yes. Exactly. Um, Was born in in, um, Wurzburg, Germany, where he later studied medicine and philosophy at the university. He went on to train as a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst, in addition to studying clinical neurology. And Dr. Weiss is the head of the Department of Psychosomatic Medicine at the Robert Bosch Hospital, Stuttgart, a post he has held for over 20 years. He teaches at the University of Tübingen, and is a director of the Sigmund Freud Institute Frankfurt. In the 1990s, he was a visiting scientist in the adult department of the Tavistock Clinic, London. And he has also taught in Italy, France, the USA, South America, Central America. Since 2012, he has chaired the education section of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. So, and one reason I am am interviewing Dr. Weiss today about his book, Trauma, Guilt, and Reparation, is because he's going to be coming to Los Angeles. Well, coming virtually, I guess, is right. It's by Zoom, right? Um, At the invitation of two institutes here in Los Angeles, we have uh, an institute I belong to, the Psychoanalytic Center of California, and then another institute, the the New Center of Psychoanalysis, which is um, basically hosting it. And so for, for listeners who are interested after this podcast, if you'd like to learn more, um, you can contact me or the new center for psychoanalysis in Los Angeles to learn how to, I guess, I think it's open to the public to participate in this, this seminar on Saturday, November 6, uh, where we'll really be going into depth, uh, in some of the ideas we'll be talking about today with Dr. Weiss. So, good morning, Dr. Weiss. Good morning, Felix. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for taking your time. I know you're really busy doing lots of teaching and seminars nowadays. And so we always start off, and let me show people the book here, uh, Trauma, Guilt, and Reparation. It's a hardback book, uh, unlike so many we get nowadays. And uh, We always begin with just saying, why did you write this book? What was the reason for for it?
0: Yes. I think the intention to to write this book resulted from my psychotic work with uh, borderline patients, mainly, essentially, and also from my research on pathological organizations of the personality. And I found that many of these patients suffer from early traumatization and I was impressed clinically how they construct highly complex intrapsychic organizations, which first seem to offer some sort of protection in the beginning, but later on become prisons which are very difficult to escape. In the analytic situation, these organizations create dead ends and long periods of withdrawal, which Seem to obstruct psychic development and change. And for me, John Steiner's theory of psychic retreats in particular was helpful to understand these highly complex states of mind. And then I began to explore in more detail the specific characteristics of those impasse situations and, and also the way the analyst gets often uh, drawn into it. And another important observation was that many of these patients suffered from tormenting feelings of guilt. And I asked myself where the feelings of guilt came from and why those patients turned to self-hatred and punishment and often seemed unable to deal with guilt. I found that the inner figures that dominated their minds were damaged and damaging, that there was a specific difficulty for them to repair them. Therefore, I decided to examine the relationship between trauma, guilt, and reparation.
1: And we're going to look at each one of those words, I think, because they're the title of your book, and I think they're a real good way to to get into how, your approach. But let's start with your approach, which, so I've obviously heard, I already heard John Steiner, pathological organizations, uh, psychic retreats. So we know these are terms from uh, what we might call a sort of a British world of psychoanalysis. And, and you being German, can you tell us more about, uh, about your approach and how you, you came to it? Yes. <clears throat> Um, um, I,
0: when I, I was trained in Germany and when I was trained as a psychoanalyst, there was very little Kleinian analysis in Germany uh, it was only in the late 80s and 90s that a growing interest began to develop in Kleinian theory but still today this uh, is different from Kleinian clinical practice and I think Kleinian analysis is mainly about how we talk to the patient and how we take up the patient's communications. And before my training, as you mentioned, I had uh, studied medicine and philosophy. And for a while, I was actually interested in Lacanian theory. Mm, I I was already familiar with the writings of Klein and Beyond. But then when I went as a visiting scientist to the, TV, to the Tevisto Clinic in 1992 and '93, hmm, the clinic, clinical work of the Kleinian analysts made a, a great impression on me. I was enthusiastic about it. I attended John Steiner's borderline seminar there and later on translated his book, Psychic Retreats, into German. And... At that time, I was also one of, obviously one of the first who did research in the Klein archive in the Wellcome Institute for the History of Medicine, and in spe- particularly in Klein's early child analysis and uh, research work that was later on continued by my friend and colleague Claudia Frank and also by Elisabeth Spillius. And from that time onwards, in the nineties, we organised. Uh, conferences in Germany, in Italy, translated Kleinian papers and books, and I had supervision with Hannah Siegel, John Steiner, David Taylor, Sandy Byrne, and so I got into, uh, in close contact with my London colleagues.
1: And for listeners, I'm curious about in in Germany, is is the kleinian approach still somewhat of a minority approach to psychoanalysis within the world of german psychoanalysis as I, I think i would say it is here in the united states and and could you say a little more for readers who aren't from or listeners who are not familiar with with kleinian psychoanalysis a bit more about how it takes up the work
0: you mean what kleinian analysis is about or what is the
1: corrective
0: features of kleinian analysis or
1: yeah, I. You said something a little few few minutes before about it's a way you talk to the patient, uh, but but that's pretty general because every approach talks to the patient, but but maybe a little more specifics. And also just how the world where it is in Germany, Kleinian psychoanalysis is it? Is it? Yes, as I as I
0: mentioned, there was little uh, known about Kleinian. You know that Klein left Germany already in 1925. that was eight years before the Nazis took power in Germany. And she was invited by Ernst Jones and had this enormous success in the British society, despite her English, which was always, for a long time, She, she spoke like I do, with a strong German accent. So, and in the archives, we actually found her Autobiography and were allowed to publish part of them, and, but the the Germans, though many analysts were killed in the concentration camps, and those who who could escape either to London or to the United States, some of them to Argentina, and there was a long sort of vacuum for psychoanalysis in in Germany, and. Uh, In particular, Kleinian analysis, uh, it lasted quite long, up to the 80s. Uh, When it returned, there was a a, a theoretical interest. Uh, And there still is, uh, um, I think today there's more exchange between London Kleinians and German analysts who who invite their British colleagues or see them for supervision in, in London, as I did, but nevertheless, the number of, of clinical Kleinians, I would say, is relative small. And there are also, of course, many colleagues who would not agree and are still opposed to Kleinian analysis in Germany.
1: Okay. All right. And rather than trying to to, to talk about what is Kleinian psychoanalysis, let's, let's see it in action by starting to get into some of the way you look at uh, some of these issues, like like trauma, for instance, um, since that's the first title in your book. And I wanted to, to say a few things about trauma uh, to, to, in, to introduce this question, um, how you take up trauma, because I, I read a great article in the, the current issue of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis uh, by you on trauma. Uh, uh, I think it's a very, the current issue um, and so you you look at trauma from the perspective of psychoanalysis, and I think it, it's, um, it's important for us to to, to to learn about that a little bit here, because I recently read a book um, that, that looks at trauma from a neuroscientific perspective. It's a famous book by Bessel van der Kolk called "The Body Keeps Scored," uh, published in 2014. Uh, and it's it's very much about how trauma. Impacts the nervous system, brain structures, um, creates kind of a hyperarousal, and I don't know the emotional brain, the subcortical parts of the brain, and and um, so it really looks at trauma from I don't know a brain based sort of perspective. But we know, and that's how a lot of clinicians in the United States sort of that's what trauma is to them. So when they hear um, psycho and it, analysts talking about trauma it might not be quite the same thing but why don't you um talk a bit about about how you understand trauma from the psychoanalytic perspective
0: first i think uh, these are two different approaches or perspective on the same issue and i'm sure freud would have been very interested in the current na- uh, neurobiological research on on the- altered brain function in trauma. So that's it's it's a little bit difficult for epistemological reasons to translate neurobiological language into a psychoanalytic approach. But nevertheless, it's interesting to to put them together and to to see the links between them. From a psychoanalytical point of view, I would say <clears throat> The classical view was that trauma is an experience which uh, overloads and disrupts the psychic organization. This may be due to the intensity of an experience or also to the immaturity of the child who cannot bind and, uh, and integrate the surplus of of excitation of trauma of excitation that was what freud already described in the in the 1890s he was initially preoccupied with the role of external sexual traumatization but already in the late 1890s he had doubts about the reality of his patients memories and it was for that reason that he gave up the so-called seduction theory and focused more on the role of unconscious fantasy. But nevertheless, uh, he always was interested as well in the role of external traumatization. And throughout his work we find this uh, interplay between internal and external factors leading to what he called helplessness and impotence, at the core of traumatic experience. Or if you would like me to express it it, in a picture, one could say what looks from outside like the impact of a meteor strike on the surface of the earth, that is the overpowering effect of an overwhelming reality, is being experienced from inside like the explosion of an unconscious fantasy, and um, or perhaps it would be even more adequate to imagine that uh, the effects of traumatic experience is as a series of meteor strikes that lead to the explosion of a volcano, resulting in a climate change that leads to hunger, cold which in turn leads to a long-lasting civil war, an internal warfare, as Klein called it. And it is this intra-psychic civil war what leaves the individual with damaged internal figures. It's always an interplay between external and internal factors, but the damage is in the internal world. I liked very much Klein's uh, expression, the, uh, the internal warfare, so, so civil war inside the human mind.
1: And so we move from trauma, guilt, and reparation. One of the um, maybe counterintuitive ideas of psychoanalysis, especially your, your approach to it, is that people who are traumatized often feel guilty, um, and so, and I guess they don't deal with that guilt well. But um, why would you say, ha, so, and I guess this really opens up the Kleinian perspective. Why would you say because a child, for instance, has been terribly mistreated, that child feels guilty about that experience?
0: Yeah, that is indeed one of the great paradoxes. Why should the child feel guilty for the damage that has been the abuse that had been inflicted on him. And I think, and it's not enough in therapy to tell the patient that he must not feel guilty because his internal uh, severe superego always punish, punishes him or her again. And I think if you ask where does the guilt come from, I think there are mainly perhaps three different sources. I think one one source is the individual's fantasy to have created the bad objects in a magical way. The fantasy is that the individual has created the experience mm, he has suffered, and that he is responsible. He feels responsible for what has done to him, and therefore one might say, with a traumatic experience, that the bad internal objects become so real. The second source of guilt feelings, I think, is the enormous hatred and longing for revenge towards those uh, evil figures. And finally, I think we must keep in mind that there's almost, almost always an un- unconscious identification with the traumatizing figures, in my book, for instance, I describe uh, a patient who had been handed, as a child, by her mother to a gang of pedophilic men for for seven years, from the age uh, from fa- from five to uh, to eleven years, and much later she created a fantasy. but this is an example of one of these intrapsychic organizations. She created the fantasy of a tower where she was imprisoned and tortured by cruel men. But paradoxically, this fantasy was comforting and gave her relief, she told. Because the promise was in the fantasy that if she would tolerate all these sufferings from the man without complaint, then she would be safe and become part of them. And it is interesting that she called those men her best friends. So that is a strange way of becoming identified with the people who treated her so badly. I found it an amazing capacity of the human mind to transform the persecutory experience into something uh, totally different. They became their best friends. And during her analysis, it was was a conflict of loyalty between the man in the tower and the analysis. She was not allowed to tell me about her sufferings, her childhood experiences, and the man and them they would strictly punish her and so on. So I uh, I think that uh, guilt has different origins uh, for traumatized patients.
1: Yeah, and I heard there. A, the, a similar idea to, I guess it's Anna Freud's idea about the, the victim's identification with the oppressor, but, but you, you spelled it out there. Or, um, or it's also similar to this idea, um, I guess from Fairburn, that what, what is it that the child wants to protect, would rather live in a, a world where the child is the devil. Uh, how does that work? You, want to pre- you don't want your parents to be bad because the child can't uh, tolerate having um horrible parents because the child depends so much so the child becomes bad in order to protect the goodness of the parent um,
0: exactly the, all about this con- confusion about who is who what is good what is bad we often see that uh, bad figures are idealized as it was a case in my patients with the man in the tower were the best friends and there's all this uh, state of uh, disorientation and confusion are similar to what Anna Freud called identification with the aggressor, perhaps with the difference that the, that the that the aggressor also contains parts of the self. And so we always project something of our own, threatening destructive impulses into the aggressors and reintrojected in a certain way and that is the uh, the building blocks of the pathological organizations which we, we also can call uh, traumatic defense organizations because they serve as an what did my patient call it her protective armor she called it so that they, they didn't want to give to give up.
1: Okay so if we stay with this picture of the, the, the patient who was terribly sexually abused as a child. She's in a tower with these evil men. She's kind of one with them. Where does guilt show up there? And and what's your role that you were working out with her that she had so much trouble working out? Yes.
0: Mm. She was terribly uh, suffering, of course. of uh, She always had a longing to die. Um, She believed that she was responsible for the sufferings of her mother, who was a very disturbed and delinquent woman. So Mm -hmm. she had the fantasy if she would not exist, her mother would be sane and so on. And when I looked closer into the transference, then I discovered that she was uh, submitting towards me. So, at one instance, she said that she experienced my interpretations as orders, what she should do. And she felt that she had to to obey that it was her task to help me to make her function again. So, we had a very similar relationship in the transference with me and for me, it was very difficult to adopt the role of such a cruel figure too. So that was so. I had either I felt so I wanted to rescue her in my countertransference fantasy from the uh, dominance of the man in the tower. But in the meanwhile, I had become also one of these men to whom she had to submit and to obey, and she idealized me. And then we had to. Examine this part of the transference, including her suppressed hatred towards those figures. So I felt we have to, I had to bring it all into the transference situation, where a situation developed that she got into a conflict of loyalty and between the men in the tower and her analyst, and the man said if she would go on with the therapy. And they would withdraw their pre, uh, protection, and she would be totally left alone and confused and despaired. And that was a very critical situation where she uh, lost the protection of this tower organization.
1: Yeah, it really evokes something many of us have probably experienced with some of our patients who have been terribly treated. Um, in their lives, and they feel so bad about themselves. Um, Some of them, they they just feel like they're um, miserable human beings. Um, uh, But yeah, you can see how that's partly how they're familiar living, and that keeps them attached to their original objects, um, who were so important to them, um, bad as they might have been. and how frightening it is to move away from those objects uh, and what that means um, for them. Uh, so as you went, you went through, it was interesting, three different ways that guilt arises um, in, in a traumatized individual. And one of them was you, you talked about, I think you called it the archaic superego. Uh, and I think that's an important um, idea that comes up in a lot of your work, this archaic superego. Can you say more about that uh, how that operates to create guilty individuals Yes I think the uh the
0: discovery of the archaic uh severe super ego was one of the of klein's findings and there was a bit of controversy between her and Freud about because she thought that the origin of this of the early superego is uh very early, in the f- already in the first year, not only of uh, the heritage of the Oedipus complex as we are used to think about it. and um, um, She described the super-ego mm, as a, the early super-ego as a very punitive and persecutory uh, psychic agencies. Uh, but she always, in her paper uh, on the development of psychic function in, from the late 15s, she described how this uh, internal figure slowly evolves and makes a development to a more helpful figure that no longer persecutes and punishes the ego but enables the the individual to make reparation. And she says, the uh, the major superego is actually like the good mother who protects the child. And that I found very interesting, how this, um, this uh, transition from the early persecutory, punitive, sadistic superego to the more helpful and supportive super ego comes about. And that is closely linked with reparation. And uh, that idea of Klein helped me to get an idea of how we could work uh, with our patients. For instance, my patient also in the transference experienced me as a very powerful, probably sadistic figure who she idealized, of course, so she, because I had all the power. She had to obey. I gave interpretation as, as order but slowly she discovered so that it there was a different sort of contact between us and that was difficult for her to accept that i am not so an idealized figure but also not such a punitive figure and then she she became a little bit freer and what was clearly palpable in the analytic sessions and so we had this this movement but the internal figure became lost some of the cruelty and um, that was I think closely linked with reparation yeah, but there's a paradox because to develop the superego we must be able to repair and on the other hand to be able to make reparation uh, the super ego strat- must become less severe. So there's an interdependency between reparation and the developing superego.
1: Okay, so, so so we have traumatized individuals. They feel all this guilt. Um, and then um, if they're able to begin to repair, uh, things soften up inside and there's a move towards a gentler, more compassionate internal experience, which then um, obviously changes how people relate outwards. Um, so re- so, so I guess in, in, you, in this approach to psychoanalysis, one of the goals is to help people move towards this reparative experience um, within and without. And, and sometimes I think that that's a synonym for forgiveness. And I think it comes up sometimes in, in clinical and psych- therapy work where a patient says, do I have to do I have to forgive uh, um, the people who abused me, and I'm wondering how would how would you answer that? Do we have to forgive people who' terribly mistreated us? I'm grateful that you asked
0: uh, this question because um the idea um that the the patient has to be able to forgive the persons who treated them so badly is so, a a great misunderstanding of the concept of reparation. Now no, I think this is not the case. Reparation relates, as I said, to the damaged internal figures that are inside the patient's minds. And it leads to the de- development of a more benign super-ego that le- and leading to an end of this internal civil war, as I said. And this process, I think, implies a lessening of distortions, including those of idealization of good objects, so that the bad object that actually did inflict the trauma can also be seen more realistically as bad. And this paradoxically enables good objects or good aspects of the object to be loved in a deeper way. So the, the, the consequence of reparation is that the distortions lessened and that our picture of our objects and, of course, also of ourselves, gets more differentiated and that we co- can more wholeheartedly hate the bad aspect of the object, mm. which enable us to, to love deeper the good experiences mm. that also exist in life.
1: Oh, I like that. I, I don't think I picked that up in your book, that, that this this therapeutic process enables us to hate more intensely the bad object. Um, that feels right to me, uh, I think, in terms of my own experience of, uh, yeah, having the chance to really feel hatred towards uh, what's what's been hurtful and damaging to us. Um, I like that because it's a non-moralizing aspect to... Um, to the internal world that allows a place for hate uh, to continue. Absolutely,
0: because that has to do with the overcoming of splitting. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, as long as we split, so then we have only there is no no necessity to to feel guilt because as long as we hate only the bad object without any good aspect, there is no feeling of guilt. And as long as we idealize a good uh, object, we must also not feel guilt. But the problem comes up when we when we detect and find out that our hatred is directed also against the good aspect. And then there comes this painful process of integration which leads to a more realistic picture of ourselves and of the external world. Um, that means that we are allowed and can hate the real bad experiences as they were, without feeling so guilty, so much guilty for it.
1: Um, I'm having one thought here that uh, some people from outside the Kleinian world who are sort of maybe taking a critical approach might might characterize the whole approach of Kleinian psychoanalysis as kind of a almost a Christianizing of the internal world. If we think of like the Old Testament where we have a wrathful God who, and there's what is it, the Italian law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then gradually we move the patient into this more New Testament world of love and forgiveness. Um, so I don't know, obviously I'm characterizing in a simplistic way, but it does seem like maybe there's a, a possibility here of, of a, a psychoanalysis that's kind of taking up um, particular values from Western European Christian world and and turning it into uh, a psychoanalytic a world view.
0: Yes, I would say it's not so much about Christianizing to, to to transform the hell into the heaven, but it's more about democratizing the internal world. Uh, different to introduce more... Um, um, plurality more uh, more different opinions and perspectives are allowed and can actually coexist that is the effect uh, not Christianization
1: <laughs> okay I uh, that's a very good answer um, because uh, most of us are for democracy in one way or another um, well okay let's talk about in our let's see remaining 10 or 12 minutes here but um, one of the papers, I guess the paper you're going to present when you come to Los Angeles on November 6th is called The, Claustroph- the, the Claustro-Agoraphobic Dilemma. And I wonder if you could explain what, what that is, that dilemma.
0: I always found that the the term uh, claustro-agoraphobia was introduced, was coined by Henry Ray, who was an analyst who was born in the island of Mauritius. And and later on worked for many decades at the maudsley hospital in london and um and he i don't know whether his book uh, universals of psychoanalysis and schizoid and borderline patients is very well known in the united states but there well, he collects his experiences of his psychoanalytic work with borderline and schizoid patients and one phenomenon that he found was that many of those patients suffer from as well as from from agoraphobic anxieties. They are closely linked together. Those are patients who cannot tolerate intimacy. Mm -hmm. They feel, uh, in the moment they get too close, closer to a person, they feel imprisoned and and encaged. And for that reason, they have to flee and to escape. But when they are alone in a too far distance from their object, then they fear to, um, they feel abandoned or they fear to fall into pieces. And for that reason, they must once again uh, get try desperately try to get into the object. Ray described that these are persons who lack an inner skeleton, and to push themselves into an uh, exoskeleton, like into a shell, that was his idea. And uh, but in that this uh, uh, shell, they feel instantly encaged, and this permanent movement to and fro is a is a terrible experience, and which you can which which is uh, reenacted, of course, in the analytic encounter. So difficulty to mm, to experience closeness or intimacy and contact. Yeah. Um,
1: and so you, the, you give some really beautiful clinical examples that sort of show this at work in a very persuasive way about how this is yeah. a real thing, this dilemma.
0: But actually, it was a, a long theme in psychoanalysis Be already in Freud, who said, uh, he said... Uh, he described the spatial structure of the human mind, and with this, the psychic apparatus was imagined as a, a being subdivided into different compartments and spaces. and And he said that, uh, uh, well, the first experience is perhaps the experience of birth. If you leave, if the baby leaves the mother's body, and it feels the shock of all this. Uh, uh, it has to breathe. It has the coldness, the light it must be terrible <laughs> in a way. But inside, it's also not an idealized place because it it hears the the, the, the blood and the the the, the, bulb, the bubble movements and all that. So, so Freud was interested in that. Indeed, believes that the fear of being buried alive, for instance, is one uh, expression of agoraclaustrophobia. Um, uh, The first one who wrote about this was uh, Eduardo Weiss, the founder of the Italian Psychoanalytic um, Society, and he wrote in 1925 about agro and followed Helene uh, Helene Deutsch. Um, And in America, especially Bertram Lewin uh, was... uh, was an an analyst who developed this idea on the dream screen. And he was always very attached to Kleinian ideas because he was in Berlin. He was in contact with the Klein group. And at the moment we are preparing um, a book uh, together with my uh, colleague and friend from New York, Susan Finkelstein. uh, uh, Susan Finkelstein, the book is called um, The Fear of... Madness, the agor claustro agoraphobic dilemma in psychoanalysis, where we put together all these different contributions on claustro agoraphobia. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so, with this idea, um, as maybe a central sort of concept by which we look at the, ther- the analytic experience, where we're tracking the distance is the of the patient from the analyst and the retreats and the approaches and. Um, I can see how it seems like that may require a real high-frequency treatment in order to um, to, to pr- provoke these experiences sufficiently acutely, where you can really see the, the coming closer, the pulling away. But what what is your experience with maybe people coming once or twice a week? Um, can you? St- does this approach still work? Just uh, just take a lot longer.
0: Yes, I, I think uh, <clears throat> claustro-agoraphobic anxieties are very present from early on, from the, from the first intake interview, perhaps, and we are seeing those patients in our day hospital for borderline patients, where we offer psychoanalytic individual and group treatment and for a limited period of time, for three or four months. Um, but those patients have five, 15 hours therapy per week, quite a lot, group and individual therapy. And uh, when we get, of course, into contact with this claustro-agoraphobic anxieties. And later, they can go on without patient treatment. I would say that... Uh, high frequency is much better to work these experiences through. And um, although it's sometimes difficult for those patients to to tolerate four times a week, and sometimes even to stay in the consulting room for 50 minutes. So I will describe a patient who who within a single session would, run out and come back to the consulting room several times, sometimes. As a very clear, inside the consulting room, he felt to be my prisoner. And outside, he felt totally despaired and alone and phoned me, can I come back? So, of course, it's much better if we have the opportunity to see the patient three, four times a week. And uh, in Germany, <clears throat> the National Health Insurance Allows for every person to have at least three hundred sessions, cost-free. So that is, they must not pay for it. So which is also a problem that they don't have to pay at all for it. But
1: yeah, no. But that's uh, amazing that there's still places out there where where governments pay for this kind of intensive work. Ah, oh, psychoanalytic work—it's wonderful Be- because we
0: think it's cheaper for our society.
1: <laughs> ah,
0: uh-huh. in the long run, you mean? Yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, okay, so, so, uh in, I think it, you're known for for working with borderline patients, traumatized patients, um, where maybe it's more typical to see these extreme. Um, uh, behaviors and reactions and unconscious fantasies, what about uh, healthy <laughs> I don't know, healthy. Uh, neurotic people who haven't had a particular amount of trauma in their backgrounds? Uh, should they go to Lacanian psychoanalysis? <laughs> I'm joking here, but ha- is, is that something people maybe sometimes can can, can Criticize you for and say, "Well, this is for very people who are very disturbed." This this approach to psychoanalysis.
0: No, I think it's it's um, easier, of course, to work with normal neurotic patients, as we all are, hopefully, <laughs> because um, they have a, a concept of space in their mind and some ability of symbolization, of course, because uh, one of pro- of the major problems that Ray described in the claustro-agoraphobic patients is that they communicate on a very concrete level. Their words are facts, or they communicate facts or actions, and uh, they have to develop... Uh, the analyst has a task to, um, to convert or to, um, to transform concrete communications into symbolic communication that is much easier in the neurotic patients, but although the neurotic patients has areas in his or her mind who work on a very, who operate on a very concrete level, and although this has to be unpacked and worked through, but of course it's easier. But I think it should not go to a an Lacanian analysis except We have 50 minutes for each session and at least three or four sessions a week. So because the change of the duration of the session must be extremely confusing for psychotic or borderline patients. It colludes with their internal disorientation.
1: Um, Yeah, so we didn't get into too much that concrete versus symbolic thinking, but um, I was thinking that may... um, be implicated in the patients who think, when I asked earlier about this question, do you have to forgive your abusers? That would be a concrete way of thinking. You have to concretely forgive or make reparation. Um, And you beautifully described a more symbolic way of understanding that process. Um, I will say to people that, um, people who are interested in learning more about the Kleinian approach, that this book of um, Dr. Weiss's it's really a beautiful way into it because you don't use a lot of jargon in there. I, I found you used a lot of very um, normal, everyday words and ways of of explaining things. Um, and so I've read a lot of Kleinian literature, especially some of the work from the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, which sometimes can begin to feel a little, uh, I don't know, dated. Or Whereas your writing is very up to the moment, I felt. Um, and very helpful way of, uh, of understanding this approach. Um, so let's see, any, to wrap up, uh, anything you're working on now, any other seminars coming up that people might want to join in and learn, learn more from you?
0: Yeah, after this book I, I published, but that was in German with my colleague and friend, uh, Easter Horn a book on timeless states of mind, because timelessness uh, is another Big problem for traumatized patients. They all live in a timeless world in a way, and the traumatized patient freezes time. And for that reason, he can neither truly remember nor truly forget. So I described because uh, every new experience is the recurrence of the same. And that I call, if he remembers, the experiences in a concrete way present, and uh, that I call um, traumatic remembering. And he can also not forget. That's one important point. That with the acknowledgement of the trend of transience and the passage of time, we also m- must acquire a capacity to forget. And the traumatized person cannot forget because he creates a black hole or a vacuum in his mind, which I called ecliptic forgetting. So that is a very important point to to bring the patient in contact with the experience of time. And that was in this book, Timeless State of Mind, and we uh, edited one on the repetition and the repetition compulsion, but both are in German, hopefully one day perhaps being translated into English and the uh, forthcoming one is the one on claustro-agoraphobia together with Susan Finkelstein from New York.
1: Well, thank you very much for taking um, an hour with us today, Dr. Weiss.
0: Thank you <coughs> for this talk.
1: So you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Heinz Weiss about his book Trauma, Guilt, and Reparation here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. Please contact me, philipjlance at gmail.com if you would like to learn more about um, the Zoom seminar that Dr. Weiss is going to be doing uh, on Saturday, November 6th, um, or to let me know your thoughts um, and questions about the show. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.